You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We are starting a new section in the book of Hebrews. We're starting a new section in this letter or possibly sermon that was given to a community of predominantly Jewish Christians who were wavering in their faith in the midst of increasing persecution. And really, the whole book of Hebrews could be divided into three sections. The first section of the book, which we've already looked at, describes who Jesus is. It's repeatedly declaring the utter superiority of Jesus. And if you haven't been with us in the past weeks, we learned that Jesus is greater than any human prophet, for Jesus is the Word of God incarnate in the flesh, embodying the message of God he brings. Jesus is greater than any heavenly angel, for Jesus is no mere divine creature. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is greater than Moses, we've learned, because Jesus doesn't just lead us through the wilderness. Jesus is the one who builds the house of our salvation, our home away from home with God. And as we heard even last week, Jesus is greater than Joshua. While Joshua once led the people of God into the promised land, Jesus leads us into the promise of our ultimate rest, a rest we enter into not based on our effort and striving, but thanks to his work, Christ's work on our behalf. And now with this second section, the writer of Hebrews begins to dig into what this work of Christ is. While the first part of Hebrews outlined who Jesus is, from our reading today, and this is going to take us all the way through the next couple of weeks through chapter 11, the theme that will occupy us will be focusing on what Jesus did, what Jesus continues to do for us. So let's dive in in chapter 4, verse 14. It reads, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He who is able to he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, 
He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what Jesus has done for us, I'm sure you picked this up, is framed through the work of the priesthood, a job first created and described in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Passing references to Jesus as our high priest have actually been dropped two times before, back in chapters two and three, as you can see on the screen. But now this concept in the next couple of chapters is gonna be fleshed out in marvelous detail. And this concept was something that would have been very familiar to those who first received this letter as they were raised to understand the necessity of the role of the priest in the life of their community. Living in the first century AD, these readers could still daily see for themselves these priests living out their job description at the temple in Jerusalem. And that's all well and good for them, but what about us? What about us? Our cultural distance from the priesthood of ancient Israel can make it difficult for us to enter into this framework as for understanding this work that Jesus has done for us. So what I want to do to be able to really understand this passage is I want to briefly consider the role of the priest and particularly the high priest as both are outlined for us in the Bible. To Jews living in the first century, the priests were the spiritual leaders of Israel. All of them coming from the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priests lived a life of consecrated service dedicated as the mediators between the people and God. The Levitical priests didn't ordinarily bring the Lord's message to the people. That was the role of the prophet. The priest's role was to rightly, to appropriately bring the people before God and to reflect, to communicate God's forgiveness and atonement for the people. There is that fancy word, atonement. It's a fancy biblical word that we don't use every day. So to further unpack the significance of what the writer is pointing to, let's refresh our memory as to what atonement means and why we need it. Meaning, if you think about it, if God is all about forgiveness, as we often say, if God is a forgiving God, then why can't we just say, sorry, Lord, sorry, we messed up. God grants us forgiveness and we move on. Why do we need atonement? Well, think about it this way. Let's say I borrow your phone and while I'm losing it, I break or lose your phone. There is now a breach in our relationship. There's something between us. I can't just ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist. Something is right there, broken or missing, lost. The act of repairing that breach, of addressing what is between us, is what the Bible calls atonement. And repairing the breach is not just about saying sorry and granting forgiveness. To go back to my analogy, saying sorry is great. Saying sorry is all well and good, but saying sorry won't fix or replace your phone. Whether I pay for a new phone or you do, somebody has to pay. There's a cost involved to make things right. And this cost that needs to be paid to expand this analogy isn't just an economic one. Atonement, to be clear, is about much more than resolving a debt. Atonement is about the rebuilding of trust. Atonement is about the necessity of confession. And confession 
isn't just saying sorry. Often we think when we say confess, say you're sorry. Confession isn't just biblically about saying sorry. Confession is fully acknowledging and owning my wrongdoing. Even if it was just a mistake. Even if it was an accident. Atonement is about confession. Atonement is also about the beginning of repentance. And repentance is not just being more careful next time. But repentance is also about moving towards reconciliation, turning things between us around, clearing the air so that we don't have this between us getting in the way of our relationship. So with this understanding of atonement, the priests of Israel worked to mediate God's offer of atonement for the people of repairing the breach, of ensuring confession, of facilitating repentance, of clearing the air, of setting thing, helping to proffer God's offer to set things right. And they did so, if you're not familiar with this, through a series of specific, detailed, regular sacrifices on behalf of the people. If you go into the book of Leviticus, there's five different what are called sin and guilt offerings that were to keep their relationship with God in good standing. And very important you understand this. All of these sacrifices the priest offered were not somehow to bribe God so that God would be, okay, fine, I'll look the other way on this one. Or fine, okay, you've settled up. These offerings, these sacrifices were not to bribe God. They were offered to thank God for the blessings of both creation and covenant. These offerings, these sacrifices were offered to acknowledge and to embody the willingness of God's grace to cover and cleanse our sins. It's a very important but subtle distinction. To be clear, atonement as it's presented in the Bible is not about us making amends for wrongs we've done. Atonement biblically is more about responding to the opportunity God provides to clean the slate for us. In other words, atonement is not something we do. Atonement is something done for us by the grace of God. In mediating this work of atonement, the priests of Israel were led by the high priest. Moses' brother Aaron, as you heard in this passage, was the first high priest. All of the high priests thereafter were to come from Aaron's line. The high priest of Israel oversaw the work of the rest of the Levitical priesthood. But there was one specific job on one particular day every year that only the high priest was permitted to do. And that day in question was known as the Day of Atonement. This is the day, by the way, the writer is referring to in verse 3 of chapter 5. The Day of Atonement, if you're not familiar with it, was the biggest day of the year for all Israel. It is still, within modern Judaism, referred to just as the day. It's the big day. Outlined in Leviticus chapter 16, it was the day the high priest alone would go mediate atonement for all the sins of the people. Now, if you've been tracking with me, you might ask, okay, wait a second. You just said before there were five regular daily offerings and sacrifices used to facilitate atonement for the people. So why was this so-called day of atonement necessary? I mean, wasn't, that seems kind of repetitive. The big five. These regular daily offerings were about preventative maintenance, specifically addressing sins when they were realized by the individual. That's the key point. Addressing sins when they were realized by the individual. 
In other words, these big five offerings and sacrifices dealt with the accidents, the mistakes, or other wrongdoing when we recognize we've done something wrong and we need to say sorry. The Day of Atonement addresses an important question. Do we realize everything we do wrong? Are there gaps in our awareness of our sin? The Day of Atonement is based on the assumption that some sins never come to the attention of the sinner. We're talking about those unintentional accidents or mistakes we never realized we made, that were never called to our attention. We're talking about the times when we acted out in a way that wasn't directed defiantly at God, when we acted in a way that we felt perfectly justified to act the way we did, and it never occurred to us that we were crossing a line, that we didn't have all the information, that from God's standpoint, that was wrong. This thorough Deeper and complete cleaning is what the Day of Atonement was about. The high priest, by going through the curtain of the tabernacle into what was called the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, offered the people's sacrifice to cover all their sins, recognized and unrecognized, lingering and residual, all of it. And when the high priest came out alive, the people gave thanks because it reflected the Lord giving them a fresh start a clean slate in their relationship with him for another year. If you happen to go and read Leviticus 16, it's quite, it's quite elaborate and ornate what's described. But for all the pageantry, for all the glory of God's provision for the people with this day of atonement, you really need to appreciate that it was nothing more than a stopgap. It was nothing more than a band-aid. The day of atonement mediated the covering of sin, God's forgiveness of sin, but the Day of Atonement could not deal with the ultimate consequence of sin. Our continued brokenness due to sin. Our inevitable death because of sin. And it's with all this background in mind, if you've been tracking me, everything I needed to give you here, and this is going to become helpful as we continue on through the letter, but even today, with all of this background in mind, the writer of this letter asserts every high priest who served on that day of atonement was but preparing us for a better, a greater high priest who could fulfill what the Levitical priesthood could only do in part, could only do imperfectly. A better, greater high priest who would accomplish what the day of atonement always anticipated, God's covenant promise to be fully present among all his people without obstruction or limitation, not in a, in a room with a curtain in the Holy of Holies where only one person could enter into. God's covenant promise to completely and once and for all remove the sins of all the people. And that better, great high priest, the writer of this letter points to, is none other than Jesus Christ. He makes the case for Christ specifically by pointing to two job qualifications of the high priest of Israel. Qualifications, if you were reading carefully, he goes out of his way to, to point out Jesus didn't just meet, but that Jesus exceeded. The first job qualification is the high priest did not assume this role upon himself, but had to be called by God and had to come from among the people. In other words, the high priest needed to be one of us. The high priest needed to be one of us. And less than a month ago, have you forgotten? This is what we celebrated at Christmas time. 
the incarnation. Jesus, as the son of God, becomes son of man. God in Christ came down to earth and clothed himself with our humanity to be one of us, to be our great high priest, and yet to be unlike any other high priest or human being before because he was also fully divine, fully God. Notice how the writer, I don't know if you caught this, the writer goes to great pains like twice in this passage to emphasize while Jesus' work, what he did for us was patterned after the priestly work initiated by Aaron, Jesus and his work are greater than Aaron, as the writer tells us twice, as Christ doesn't hail from the, the priesthood of Aaron, Christ hails from the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, those of you who know your Bible know that comes somewhere from Genesis, but what's really interesting in this passage is this cryptic claim that Jesus comes from the order of Melchizedek isn't unpacked here. It's going to be unpacked later. We're going to talk about it at a later time. But what's important, what we can take away from this, he even teases it out for us, is the order of Melchizedek, knowing nothing else about it, was eternal. Therefore, we are to understand that Christ comes not as a mortal priest, Not as a temporary priest, but if you will, as our forever priest. Our everlasting great high priest. Not entering into the holy of holies only once a year, but ascended to heaven, sitting now and forever at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. That's the first job qualification that Jesus not only meets, but exceeds as our great high priest. The second job qualification of the high priest highlighted for us is the priest's ability to relate to the people to whom he's serving for the Lord. And the the author here goes out of his way to say that the high priest's ability to understand, to deal gently, to represent others before God, comes from sharing the pain and suffering of others, of being subject to the same weaknesses with which they struggle. That's why the writer then goes on to tell us the Levitical priests had to make sacrifices for their own sins, as well as the sins of the people. And then the writer says, Jesus, as our great high priest, can relate to us and can represent us in a similar way, but an even better way. And to support this claim, this is probably for me the heart of this passage. There are some powerful and provocative statements that are made about Jesus. Jesus is able to empathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. In other words, Jesus fully and without reservation, we are being told, entered the human condition. In his humanity, Jesus did not keep all our pain and suffering at arm's length. The incarnation, what we celebrated at Christmas, is the joining of God through Christ with the complete range of our human experience. The author wants us to understand Jesus knows what it's like to live in our shoes. Jesus knows what it's like. He found out as a young child what it's like to endure forced migration because of the injustice of a ruthless king. Jesus knows what it's like to have your family think you're crazy or your hometown turn on you. Jesus knows what it's like to be homeless and have no place to lay your head. Jesus knows what it's like to wander in the wilderness and to wrestle with the devil. Jesus knows what it's like to always have people crowding around you, some of them even repeatedly criticizing and attacking you. Jesus knows what it's like to mourn for a loved one 
to face the betrayal of a friend, to be let down by those closest to you. Jesus knows what it's like to be wrongfully accused and convicted, to be mercilessly mocked, spit upon, abused, and ultimately murdered. Jesus has completely entered into our struggle. That's what the writer wants to make clear here. But maybe we push back. Maybe we push back. Maybe we push back and say, wait a second, hold on. Jesus was pure. He never struggled. Jesus never struggled with the allure of online porn or some other addiction. Jesus was single. He never struggled with the challenges of dating, of enduring the rejection of a partner in a romantic relationship or a spouse in marriage. Jesus never struggled with the pressures of parenthood, of sleepless nights with a baby, of raising a child with, say, autism, of dealing with a teenager. And ladies, Jesus was a man. He never struggled with PMS. He never suffered a miscarriage. He never dealt with postpartum depression. Jesus doesn't understand my struggles. How could he? We can choose to get caught up in particular experiences of the human condition. We can make lists. We can choose to get caught up in particular experiences of the human condition. Or we can acknowledge the core, the common link beneath all of those emotions and experiences that we all can relate to. Whether we're a parent, whether we're married, whether we're a male or a female, the core, the common link that we can all relate to, that Jesus related to, and what is that core common link within all those particular experiences and feelings? It's this, our absolute brokenness and our desperate need. We can make lists or we can recognize the undeniable truth that we Our lives and this world are not the way they're supposed to be, and we experience the painful ripples of that reality in a multitude of ways. Jesus entered into that reality of our existence. We can make lists, comparisons, kind of get, you know, nitpick, or we can admit the inarguable fact that human nature hasn't changed one bit in these thousands upon thousands of years, and that we may have new circumstances, we may have new inventions, we may have new living conditions, but the basic human temptations of pride, of lust, of envy, of anger, of violence, of stress, of addictions, all have stayed the same. And Jesus entered fully into that. Jesus endured the weaknesses involved in all our suffering. And Jesus, the writer specifically hits it, endured, faced every temptation that results from our weakness and our suffering. Jesus faced the temptation to lie. Jesus faced the temptation to compromise what's true. Jesus faced the temptation to deny what is right. Jesus faced the temptation to run and hide or to spare or to despair over what must be. Jesus faced the temptation to strike back or to justify causing another harm. Jesus faced the temptation to steal, to cheat, to take the glory for himself. Jesus has felt the heart of every temptation we have ever felt. But again, we might argue, we might push back. Pastor Chris, I read this very carefully. It's right up there on the screen. Thank you very much. 
But how can Jesus really understand me if he never sinned? There's a part of my experience he can't get. My friends, this is so important. To say Jesus was without sin does not take away from his humanity. We must remember, and I've hit this many times before, and I'm going to do it again. We must remember part of the reason Jesus came to earth was to show us what it truly means to be human. Jesus came to offer us a different picture of ourselves rather than us accepting the broken, flawed version of our humanity, which which we've grown so comfortable as to make it the universal excuse for every accident or mistake, every sin of ours. What do we say? Well, we're only human. We're only human. Guess that gives me a pass. Guess that means it's okay. We're only human. Jesus embodies what God intended for our humanity. Perfection, wholeness, purity, unity. Jesus, make no mistake, experiences the frailty and limitations. Jesus experiences the vulnerability and uncertainty of this broken world, but he does so without compromising his humanity, without rejecting his call to be human as God created humanity to be. And that's why Paul will often refer to Jesus as the second Adam, different than the first. And here's something else to think about. This might blow your mind. In truth, Jesus' temptations were harder than ours. Jesus' temptations were harder than yours and mine. They weren't easier because Jesus was righteous. They were harder for him. You could say Christ felt more temptation than any of us. Any of us ever have, any of us ever will. And if you're going scratching your head going, you're just talking crazy. Think about this. If you're tempted to lose your temper after, say, a minute of being hassled, we would say, man, you've got a bit of a short fuse there, don't you, buddy? Now imagine resisting that urge to lose your temper for five minutes of constant annoyance. After five minutes, you'd feel the temptation more, don't you? Because the more we resist, the more we feel it. Am I right? What about five hours of constant aggravation? How about five years of constant aggravation? What about a lifetime of constant aggravation and never giving in? The person who resists temptation knows more about temptation than the person who caves in. Jesus knows more about evil than any of us. Than any of us. Because he resisted it. Minute by minute. Hour by hour. Day in, day out, for the whole of his life. This, by the way, is what the writer of Hebrews means when he declares he learned obedience through his sufferings. In other words, what he's saying is all of Jesus's, all of his weaknesses led Jesus into a posture of obedience rather than despair. All of his temptations resulted in Christ's faithfulness, not his faithlessness. In all of his sufferings and temptations, Jesus modeled reliance on God rather than rebellion against our creator. 
Do you get this? Jesus stood in our shoes, doing it right, showing us what it truly means to be human, what we were meant to be, what we are capable of when we live our lives not divorced from God, but when we live our lives in constant concert and reliance upon God. It's Jesus' sinlessness that makes him the best, the only reliable one to turn to in the midst of our struggles and our need. The Levitical priests were just like you and me, flawed human beings. They could understand human sin, as I mentioned previously, because they shared in it. They could relate to the suffering of others to a point. They could relate to the suffering of others to a point, but then their own junk got in the way. The same is true for all of us. As a pastor, I pride myself. I'm grateful. I think I do a good job at counseling. As a pastor, my counseling ability, however skilled, experienced, gifted, whatever, I may think my counseling ability is sorely limited. Even with the best training, even with the most experience, even with my sincerest effort, what I can offer you, anyone, is not enough because of my sin. Inevitably, unavoidably, my baggage gets in the way of truly listening and loving others. I kind of talked about this last week, and some of you kind of pushed back. You found that kind of offensive about this idea that we truly can't love each other, people without something, getting something in return. We can't truly serve someone without being about us. And this is, I'm pointing back to this. Inevitably, unavoidably, my baggage gets in the way of truly listening and loving others. Because sin is selfishness. And because of my sin, I get upset. I get self-protective. I get impatient. Because of our sin, we fall victim in different ways to getting stuck on ourselves, of becoming wrapped up in ourselves. But Jesus, being without sin, is the only one who is not wrapped up in himself. We get his full attention. His whole heart can completely go out to us because his heart is not divided. Facing temptation in every way like we do and truly being the last man standing, Jesus can not only fully empathize with us, Jesus is the only one who can hammer out for us, hammer out within us a spotless, righteous, perfectly complete human life. That's why we don't just ask Christ to forgive us. That's why this faith journey isn't just about great. I got forgiveness from my sins and I'm going to heaven. Paul and Peter will wrestle with. We pursue and seek Christ to transform our very lives. That's why we have this mission statement of flourishing. Flourishing isn't just the fact that great, your sins are forgiven, your slate's clean. Flourishing isn't just great, when you die, you know where you're going. Flourishing is becoming the fullness of who you were created to be. And that, is only possible in Christ. Letting Christ transform your life, how you think, how you speak, how you act, transform you into who you were created to be. And that's why because of all this, what he's outlined Jesus has done for us, and he's going to keep talking about what Jesus keeps doing for us. The writer encourages us to respond to all of this in this way, probably the key verse here. Let us then approach God's, of, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
we are encouraged, in other words, to boldly go, to run to God rather than to run away from him. This was our greatest mistake in the beginning, and it continues to be our ongoing mistake to this day. We run away from God in defiance and disobedience. We run away from God in fear and disillusionment, guilt and shame. But if we know who Jesus is, if we begin to understand what Jesus has done and continues to do for us, we don't need to. We mustn't run away from God anymore. My friends, which direction are you running? Are you running away from God or are you running to God? Where do you go in your time of need? I said this last week and I got pushed back on this, that Jesus is the person we go to last after we've exhausted every other option. And you may not like it, but it's true. Whenever a national tragedy happens, the church is full. Whenever something happens that we can't understand that's bigger than us, people get down on their knees and say, Lord, I don't even know if I believe in you, but if you're there, help. But when everyone's doing great, when we're all self-sufficient, nobody's here. Or we're here, but we're here kind of with one leg in and one leg out. Yeah, what do you got for me, God? I'll evaluate it. I'll let you know. I'll get back to you. Things are going pretty good right now. Guys, where do you go in your time of need? Let me put it even heavier. Who's on the throne of your life? We're directed to the throne of grace. Who's on the throne of your life? Everyone, don't kid yourself. Everyone believes that something is on the throne. Everyone believes that something's on the throne. Even if you're an atheist, a practical atheist, you believe that impersonal, nondescript forces run the show. Or maybe you're someone who believes in survival of the fittest. Or maybe you believe in karma some kind of cosmic balancing of the scales. Where do you turn in your time of need? Do you believe God is some absentee landlord? He's left you the keys and now you're on your own? Who's on the throne of your life? Who's driving our existence? Is it sex? Is it money? Is it power? Is it fame? Is it death? Because hear this, there's no one on the throne but Jesus. Nothing else, no one else has what it takes to occupy that seat, to do the job that needs to be done. Do we need a priest? Great asking a room of Protestants. Because <laughs> if you know our tradition, we have very strong opinions about that. Get some Catholics in here, some Eastern Orthodox, they have different story, but you Protestants, we Protestants together. Do we need a priest? The truth is, every last one of us needs a priest because none of us are who we are and what God originally created us to be. On our own, we not only fall short of the mark of all we should be, we fall short of our potential, of all that we can be together as intended by our beautiful and glorious creator. Do we need a priest? Absolutely. But we have one, one great high priest named Jesus. We have Jesus who joins us in our struggles, all our frailty, our weakness, our suffering, and our temptation, and overcomes them all. 
We have Jesus who enters into the furnace of our suffering and carries us, empowers us to move through all our pain, move beyond death itself into a renewed, everlasting life of grace. That's flourishing, by the way. So then, let us boldly go. Boldly go. When you struggle to pray, and I know many of you do, when you struggle to pray, boldly go on praying. Speaking in groans, if that's all you've got. Speaking through gasps or tears. Trusting that the Spirit of Christ not only can hear you, but is meeting you where you are. Boldly go on praying. Boldly go. When you feel far from God, and some of you I know are sitting here today, and you feel far from God, boldly go on walking by faith, knowing your heavenly Father will never leave you or forsake you, that through his Spirit, Christ the Son is still carrying you forward, will bring you home even when you cannot feel his presence. And when you suffer, when you despair, and some I have to imagine in this room right now are suffering or in despair or grieving. When you suffer, when you despair, when you grieve, boldly go. Get out of bed. Get out of your head. Open your heart. Bear your soul and wrestle with God. Scream at him if that helps. Accuse him if you must. He can take it. Question him as you need to, but rest assured, he will not let you go. He will stay with you and he will hold on to you even when you don't feel like holding on to him. And even though you may doubt the hope you have in him, he will still come through on his promises anyway. Boldly go when you trip up or even when you openly rebel, when you sin, boldly go, confess and repent without fear, for Jesus bears the wounds of your forgiveness, but also boldly go and follow, keep your eyes on him, listen to his voice so that you need not stumble and fall. Beloved, when we fear, when we worry, even when we die, let us boldly go, not perceiving an uncertain or unknown future, but recognizing Christ who always goes before us, Jesus who stands on the horizon of tomorrow with open arms, with the assurance of our resurrection, and always with the words of eternal life. Amen.